morning. I've still got a little bit of my shopping to do, but if you're looking for some different Christmas gift items, I was looking on the internet, and here were a couple different things that you could still pick up before Christmas next Sunday. Uh, one of the things I found was bacon-scented wrapping paper. Bacon-scented wrapping paper. If you want your gifts to smell like Keith's Kitchen when he's cooking bacon, then you can wrap all your gifts with bacon-scented wrapping paper. The second one, and I thought this was kind of cool and pretty efficient, it was a toothbrush where you can brush all of your teeth at once. It's got all the little thistles and stuff on it, and you can just put it in your mouth once, swish it around a little bit, and then be done. You don't have to worry about brushing each individual tooth. I don't know what dentist approved that, but it's definitely a more efficient thing you could get your loved one this holiday. Although if you get them a toothbrush, I'm not sure what that says about, you know, that might send the wrong message. The third thing was racing possums. It was these little kind of Hot Wheel type cars and you could wheel them back and then you could race the possums to see which one went first. I'm not a huge fan of possums to be honest and so I would not be getting that but I would be interested to see which one would win. Fourth, and I might get my dad this because he's a big guy when it comes to spices and to peanuts but uh, they are ghost pepper nuts. You can get ghost pepper nuts. You can get them in big bags, too. I don't know who could possibly eat a big bag of ghost pepper nuts. And then the last thing you could get for your loved one this Christmas, and I had a picture. It wasn't going to work on our screen. You can always get a good gingerbread house to build with your family this holiday season. I know Alicia and I were going to try to build a gingerbread house, and I said, let's just not tell the church we're going to do that. There's a history of gingerbread houses here at Sycamore. Um, whether it's a crazy Christmas gift you're looking for or you're asking yourself which holiday parties you're going to attend, which family members you're going to talk to, which family members you might avoid this holiday season, there's a lot of questions that come up around Christmas. Whatever it is you are deciding to buy for your loved one, Christmas, as I've said before, brings us a lot of different questions that we have to answer, right? There's a lot of, you know, even beyond just the superficial of what gifts you're going to get someone or what parties you're going to attend. We've said in this series that everyone at some point is going to have to answer the question, what do you do with Jesus? Whether you're an atheist, whether you're a believer, an unbeliever, a Catholic, a Mormon, you are going to decide this Christmas what you do with Christ. And so that's been the question we've been trying to answer together. And we've seen Jesus in a variety of different positions. We, a couple weeks ago, saw him as Jesus the prophet. Now, he's not just a prophet. He's not like prophets. I don't mean that like other religions would call some of their figures a prophet. But Jesus was sent by the Father to the world, and he had a message of salvation for the whole world to hear. And then last week, we looked at Jesus, our great high priest. He's passed through the heavens, and he enables God to go to man and man to go to God because the two were not able to before then. And so Jesus is our great high priest. And this week we look at Jesus, our king. Jesus is the king. It's not a conditional statement. Well, if Jesus is the king, then you should do this, this, and this. No, Jesus actually is the king, not just of Israel, even though he is the king of Israel, but Jesus is the king of everything. And that's part of why we're in this passage this morning. Jesus is the king of everything. And so if he's the king, then how do we respond to him? How is Christ the king? Well, we'll discuss both of these this morning. We know that he's the messianic king of Israel. 
when David was wanting to build the temple for God, David said, hey, I want to build you a house. I want to build you a temple. And God said, actually, I'm going to establish your house through your line. It's always going to be a king on your throne. And we know that's ultimately fulfilled in Christ. He's the king of Israel. But what we specifically see in Ephesians this morning is that actually Jesus is the king of everything. And even if that word isn't used, this whole passage is based on the fact that Christ controls everything. Everything is subjected to him, and we should submit to Christ. Now, in the book of Philippians, the next book over, we see that whether or not you, whatever you answer that question with, what do you do with Jesus, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, Everyone at some point is going to say that Jesus is the king. Everyone at some point, it says, will bow and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of everything. And so why does it matter for us that we view Jesus as the king? Well, what we want to see together this morning is this. It is that Jesus is the king and therefore we should know Jesus and we should make him known. Jesus is the king, and we should know Jesus and make him known. The gospel that really focuses on Jesus being the king is the gospel of Matthew. And it's an interesting gospel to read through. It starts out with this genealogy of all these men, and um, it has some women in Jesus' life as well, but how Jesus is really connected to the line of David, how he is the rightful king of Israel. And then as we see Jesus, you start kind of wondering, imagine reading the Gospel of Matthew for the first time. You've never understood who Jesus is. You've not heard the Gospel. But you know the Gospel of Matthew is going to tell you about King Jesus, who's King of the Jews. You're probably starting to wait for the moment when people recognize that he's the king. But you read the virgin birth story, and you see that he's born in a manger, that he's, that he's born to Mary, who is a poor, humble girl, that he lived as a carpenter, that he lived a real human life. And as you see throughout this entire gospel story, you see Jesus, who is really the king, but he's not treated like a king. And really, the only time he's ever crowned in the gospel of Matthew is when they put a crown of thorns on his head and they reject him. And then when Christ is resurrected, you think, okay, now's the time. Jesus is going to be the king He's going to take over, but he goes to heaven. And that doesn't mean Jesus isn't in control of everything right now, but we know that his kingdom is coming. He will build a real physical kingdom here on earth for a thousand years, and he will be crowned king. And so you might wonder, why hasn't he done that yet? Why is the millennial kingdom not here right now? Why has Christ not been crowned here physically on earth and I think it's because he desires that we know him. He desires that we have a relationship with him. You have the opportunity to know him, love him, and submit to him. And to those who know Christ, you'll spend forever with him in eternity, serving him as your king. And to those who don't, in Matthew, he says, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And so as we think about this passage this morning, it's maybe not a typical Christmas passage, Ephesians 1. Um, it's maybe not even a typical passage you'd think of as Christ as the king. But what we really see is that we should know Jesus. We should understand who he is, make him known. 
because Jesus is in charge of everything. And that's what I hope we see. So as we think about this this morning, how can we know Christ and make him known? Well, first of all, in verses 15 and 16, we see that we can act in faith and love. Look with me at verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is typical of Paul's letters that he starts out with some kind of word of thanksgiving or of encouragement to the Ephesians who he's writing to. Now, Ephesians is unique because before he really gets to how he's thankful for them, he starts out with this long hymn of praise in verses 3 through 14. And it praises the Father for planning salvation, for creating the world, for being sovereign over all of salvation. It praises Jesus for being our redemption in his blood, how he's redeemed us. And that affects even how we understand this passage, even how it's through Christ that the plan of God is made full and how we can understand him through that. And then later on, how through the Spirit, he seals us. He's the seal and the guarantee of our inheritance. And so as we even are in this passage, and if you ever read in Ephesians later, know that a lot of Ephesians is based back in this passage in verses 3 through 14. But as we start in verse 15, he starts giving reasons for why he's thankful for the Ephesians. And the first thing he says is that he's thankful for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul's probably been gone from Ephesus for about five to six years at this point. So he's not been around them, he's not visited, but he's heard about their actions. He's heard about what they've been up to. And as he hears about them, he says, I'm thankful for your faith. Now, this isn't just faith at salvation, although I think it can include that, but this is actually a life of faithfulness, a life of faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, one author says faithfulness towards God vertically leads us to the love that we have for each other horizontally. What does that mean? When we act in faith towards God, we're then able to love others like we should. And so that's why we often see the three things together, the three attributes together, faith, hope, and love, because they're interdependent on each other. So Paul says, I'm thankful for you and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What we really see here is that believing the gospel, believing that Jesus died for our sins, submitting to him as the king, will lead us to being faithful to him in our lives. But as we already said, it also leads us, number two, to love. It leads us to love for the saints. First John talks about Love. What is love? That's a pretty complicated thought in our society today. But John tells us that God is love. Love isn't God. And so many people want to say that today. Okay, you need to be more loving. Well, God is a God of love. And so if that's true, then you need to accept all of my feelings and thoughts of what love actually is. Well, no, we can't define love for God, but God actually defines what love is. And how does he do that? Well, also in First John, he says, this is love that Christ laid down his life for us. So it's a self-sacrificial love, and that's how God sets the standard for what love actually is. It's seeking the highest good for another person. 
It's not thinking of yourself, but it's thinking of others. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have a better opportunity to love. And notice what he says. He says it's not just love, but it's love towards all the saints. Now, wait a second. Are we supposed to love the world? Are we supposed to love unbelievers? Yes. But the truth is, is that believers in Jesus Christ, and I hope our church is a picture of this, we can love one another better because we are loved by God and God loves us. We actually can love one another better within the body of Christ because we are united through the gospel. The love that Christ has for us then flows through us as believers. In Philippians, the next book over, Paul talks about how he prays that their love would abound. It's like overflowing like a river would just flow out more and more so that other people would see it and be drawn towards it. It doesn't mean that we don't love unbelievers, but when unbelievers see our church or when other people see our church, they should see the love that we have for one another at work, how we are able to deeply love one another because we have believed the gospel. And so Paul says, I'm thankful for you because of your faith and your love towards the saints. Now notice this faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. All this is focused on Christ, and we'll talk more about that here in a few moments. But we're even just getting a hint of how Christ is Lord. But notice then verse 16, he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now Paul uses this word often when he talks about praying, how he should pray without ceasing, or he doesn't stop praying for people. And so you think, is Paul always praying Well, I do think Paul prayed a lot, but really what I think this verse is showing is that every time he went to prayer, which was often, he was always remembering the Ephesians. He was always bringing them up in prayer. Think about your prayer life this morning as I think about mine. There are often times where maybe you'll pray and maybe you've given significant time to prayer for that day, but then you forget about someone. Someone slips your mind. You think, oh, I should have been praying for this person. Maybe a request is mentioned in our service or at another time. And you think, oh, I wish I would have spent more time praying for them. Once again, God is sovereign. He knows all. He's in control of all. But prayer helps us align our will with God. It also shows our care for one another. How did Paul show his care for the Ephesians? He says, every time I went to God in prayer... I never ceased to pray for you. He was always involved in active prayer. But why is prayer so important? If God is sovereign, then why does Paul spend so much time praying? Well, I think it's because he understood the lordship of Jesus. We're going to get to these verses here in a few moments. But this prayer here that he has for the Ephesians as he's praying for them is really based in the fact that he believes what he says in verse 20. That he worked all things in Christ when he raised him from the dead. And that God seated Christ in the heavenly places. And we saw last week because Christ is in heaven, we are able to pray to him and he's able to take our requests to God. And so because of the lordship of Christ, Paul does not cease to give thanks for the Ephesians. He says, I'm remembering you and my prayers are making mention of you. They often come to his mind. Because Jesus is the king, 
we then should ask ourselves, how does that affect our lives? If he's in control of everything, how does that affect how we live as Christians? How does that affect how we live with one another? Well, we start seeing the development of that here. We should first of all live in faith. We should live in faith. And again, it's more than just believing the gospel, although it's not less than that. We should believe the gospel. We should understand what the gospel is and put our faith and trust in Christ. But because Jesus is the king, we should live a life that is faithful to him, that serves him as the king. What does this lifestyle look like? What's believing his promises from scripture? Maybe you're a Christian. You know you're saved. You can point back to, this is when I was saved. This is how I've seen God work in my life. But maybe there's still things in scripture you don't quite believe or at least think are true about yourself. Maybe you've got sin in your life that you need to confess that you can't find victory over. Maybe you've got other things you struggle with in your life. You've gone through some suffering. You've had hard times and you don't believe that Christ is really there and that you can come to him with your burdens even though you know you're a Christian. If Jesus is the king, we should be faithful to him and what he's told us in scripture. We should know Jesus, and we'll talk more about how we can know him in the next couple verses. Secondly, we should love others. Does your vertical relationship with God, your faith in him, your belief and submission to him, does that cause you to love others? I've never heard it said, man, that person is a great Christian, but he really just hates other people, or he's really just not good with people. No, it's always Because this person has a relationship with Jesus Christ, they show love towards others. And they show love towards others that maybe aren't the easiest people to love. There are some people that are easy to love and kind of wrap your arms around, you know. There are other people that are a little bit harder to figure out how you can love and serve them. Because we're believers... We should love one another. We should have a deep and sincere love. Even as I think about getting engaged on Friday, I told Alicia that I loved her. But I can't love Alicia more than I love God. Actually, my love of God enables me to love others. If I tried to love her more than God, then my love for her would never be as good as it should be or would never be whole Because it's not based in the love that God has for us. Do you love God and does that love affect how you love others? And then lastly, consider with me Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. He is thankful for them and his prayer leads him and his thankfulness for them leads him to prayer to God. He understands where the praise and honor should go. Sometimes in the Christian life, we can think, That prayer is a waste of time. And maybe we wouldn't say that out loud. We probably wouldn't say that during prayer time. But sometimes we think in a hard situation, you know, we need to do something that's actually helping besides praying. But actually, if we understand that Jesus is the king, if we understand that he's in control of everything, like this passage tells us, it should lead us to prayer. Do you pray for others? And not only do you pray for others, do you pray beyond just physical needs? It's not bad that we pray for physical needs, but sometimes we can spend so much time focusing on those that we forget the spiritual needs that others 
have. I'll give you an example. I'm sure Tim loves to pray for his grandchildren. I know that. And he could want to pray for their physical needs, for their school, for their grades, things like that, for their athletics. But is it more important that Tim prays for their salvation, that Tim prays for them to grow in Christ? The answer is yes. That's true for all of us as well. We want to love others by praying for the things going on in their lives, but do we see the deeper spiritual realities that are going on for them, and do we take the time to pray for them? As you look at what Paul prays for in Scripture, and if you've never done that study, just go to all the times where it says Paul's praying for people and see those requests of what he prays for. Yes, he prays for things that are, that are physical, but he spends much more time praying for things that are spiritual. How can we know Jesus and make him known? We can act in faith and love. Secondly, we can grow deeper in our knowledge of him. <coughs> we can grow deeper in our knowledge of him. Look at verse 17. He's going to start explaining what he's praying for. So actually, the faith and love are the reasons he's thankful to them. He remembers those things as he prays. But in verse 17, he starts saying, hey, this is what I'm praying for. First of all, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. There's going to be a lot of words packed into some of these Verses. In fact, from verse 15 to verse 23, it's all one sentence in Greek. Now, if this was my English paper, my teacher would have said this is you know, a run-on sentence or something. You need to break it up. But Paul likes to use big sentences, and this is all really connected into the same prayer. So he starts by saying who he's praying to. He's praying to God, but he's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that phrase is interesting. It tells us something both about God and Jesus. First of all, with Jesus, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is sovereign, that he's in control of all. And again, this is pointing to what he's going to say at the end of this prayer about Christ and how he is over all things, how he's the king, how he's sovereign. But it's also saying that God is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about how the Trinity works together, it's not saying that Jesus is less than God, but Jesus did submit to the Father and the Father's will of coming to the earth. Jesus did do the will of the Father. We even talked about that with Jesus the prophet. So it tells us about Jesus, how he is Lord of all, how we are subjected to him, but also how God is the Father of Christ and he's the one who we pray to. It says he's the Father of glory. What is glory? It's kind of a hard term to nail down. It is a bright radiance. It is a beauty. But also we can glorify God. We can ascribe glory to him. So it's one of those terms. I don't even know if we'll ever fully get a picture of what glory is until we see God in his glory. I may not be able to give you a Webster's definition of what glory is, but I guarantee you when I see God in his glory one day, I'll be able to point to it and say that is his glory, his bright radiance. He's seated in splendor and majesty. The first 11 verses of Ephesians, or verses 3 through 14, really show us our glorious God in three persons, in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and how they're all glorious in this plan of salvation. So he's the father of glory, and he gives us something. It says, may he give us a spirit 
of wisdom. Now, there's a lot of debate over this. Is he saying that he's praying that God would give them the Holy Spirit? Well, I don't think that is the spirit that he's talking about. And the reason is they should have the Holy Spirit already, or they did have the Holy Spirit already. At salvation, in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they were indwelled with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit has a part in this, yes, of helping us have wisdom and understanding. But this is a different spirit. It's a spirit that helps us understand the things of God, and it's specifically shown in wisdom and revelation. What is wisdom? Well, a basic definition, some would say it's knowledge applied, right? It is practical knowledge, it's knowing, but also having the practical understanding to know how to apply that knowledge well. Wisdom is not only knowing God and his spiritual truths, but it's letting that affect your life. There are plenty of people who know a lot about the Bible, who know a lot of theology, who could get a perfect score on some kind of theology test. But that does not mean they have wisdom, and that does not mean they truly understand God. And I love studying the Bible. I love studying theology. But you wonder, okay, how could this pastor who knows all of this, who has written these books, how could he fall from ministry and sin? How could all these people walk away from the faith? Well, it's because maybe they do have a knowledge of something, but that hasn't been fleshed out into their lives. Wisdom isn't just knowing about God. Wisdom is knowing about God and letting that affect your life in every aspect. So he's praying that we would understand God and that we would apply that into our life. There's also things about God that we never will really understand until we get to heaven. There are other things that are just not unknown to us. And those are questions we'll have answered. But God has chosen to reveal things to us, and it's called revelation. It's his revealed truths to us, and we see that in the other part of the verse. He says, a spirit of wisdom and revelation. He has revealed certain things to us, first of all, not only in creation, even though we can see God clearly through creation, we can see he designed the world, we see that in Romans 1, but then also more specifically through his word. So Paul is praying that we would have a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in him, that we would know God better. Now this next phrase is a little bit difficult to understand. Look at what verse 18 says. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. How many of you knew that your heart has eyes? That your heart has eyes? Well, it's not quite what we think of when we think of heart or eyes. Eyes here is actually the ability to see or to understand. It's a spiritual understanding. If you've ever been been unable to see for some reason you've been blinded to something and then finally you see what is actually there maybe you've been in a dark room you're unable to see what is going on someone turns on the lights and you're able to see it i got glasses when i was in seventh in second grade i can remember the first day after i got my glasses i went to school and i thought oh that's what the board says i thought the teacher just had horrible handwriting and that I couldn't understand anything of what she was writing. I put my glasses on. And I was able to understand this is what she's trying to say to me. So the eyes of our heart, it doesn't mean your heart has physical eyes, but it's your understanding. How do you understand things? And then what is your heart? Well, the heart is the seat of emotion. 
it's the center of our mental, spiritual understanding. It's where we have our thoughts, desires, our will, our volition. It's all connected to our heart, not your physical heart, but the heart that's talked about in Scripture. It's where our desires come from. And Paul tells us that our, the eyes of our heart needs enlightened, needs to have light shined on it so that we can understand. I was listening to um, a radio reading this week of How the Grinch Stole Christmas. And it took me back to watching the cartoon versions on TV with my grandparents and some of the other movies about the Grinch. And one of my favorite parts is when it talks about the Grinch's heart and it says it was three sizes too small. And it kind of zooms in and you can see his little heart beating, you know. And then at the end, not to spoil it if you haven't seen it, but his heart grows, right? When he starts loving Christmas and loving everyone else. Well, we actually have a different problem with our hearts. And the problem, and Paul's going to show us this in Ephesians, the problem is that our hearts are darkened. Our hearts are darkened and unable to see. And this is explained throughout Scripture, that we walked in darkness, that we were unable to see, that the, our understanding in Ephesians 4 was darkened. And 2 Corinthians 4 talks about how we were spiritually blind and God caused light to shine into darkness. So in the same way, he's saying that you, even as a believer, he's praying that our hearts would be enlightened. It's not that we're being saved. It's not a salvific prayer, but he's praying that our hearts would understand what God has for us. That's what this prayer is. It's a prayer for wisdom, for revelation, that we can understand the truths of God as believers. So what are these things that Paul wants us to understand? We'll look at that first phrase after that. It says that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. It's praying that you would understand the hope that you have in Christ. And we talk about hope a lot in scripture. Hope is not just, man, I really hope it works out, a wishing for the best. But hope is a confidence that you have in Christ. God isn't sitting in heaven saying, man, I wish this is going to work out. He's sovereign. He knows what is going to happen. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you can have confidence in what is your future. That forever long God has you on this earth. When you die one day, you will be reunited with him. and You will know him for who he truly is. So he's saying, I pray that you would understand this hope that you have in Christ. The hope that he's called you to. And then notice also, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, there's a couple ways you can understand this. And I think there's an aspect of both that are true, but I lean towards one. You could either say, okay, he's praying that you would understand the inheritance that you have in Christ. And yes, we do have an inheritance in Christ. But notice what it says. The riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. The saints are the inheritance. What is he talking about? Well, we are told in Scripture, yes, we have an inheritance from Christ. But actually, we as the saints are Christ's inheritance. We are given to him. We are his people. We serve him. And Paul's praying that we would understand that and we would 
know that. It's not that we don't have an inheritance in Christ, but actually each and every one of us are given to Christ as believers. And that's something that Paul unfolds throughout Ephesians, is that we are in Christ. He's going to use that phrase over and over again, that we are in Christ and therefore we should walk worthy. Therefore, we should put away our sin. Therefore, you should love your wives, love your husbands, love your children, because you are in Christ and you are his. And so this phrase captures the fact that we actually don't belong to ourselves. But if you are a Christian, you are part of this body of saints that is given to Christ. We also understand in verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of, of his power to us who believe according to the working of his great might. Now, that's a mouthful to try to say. It's a pretty complex phrase. What he's really trying to show here is the immense power that we had that was given to, or that was used in our salvation. He's going to use several words for power. First of all, he talks about how much power there is by saying it's immeasurable. You can't measure it. I was doing some cookie baking yesterday with Alicia, and I'm using all these different measuring cups and trying to make sure we get the right ingredients into the um, mixing bowl so that we could mix it up just right. You know, she, she's starting to let me work on my own a little bit, you know, but she's still looking over to make sure I'm not putting too much in there. Paul says this is immeasurable. His power, this great power that he has, you cannot comprehend it. Secondly, he uses this word for greatness. It's a measurable greatness. It's a quality of being excellent. This power is beyond anything we can comprehend. And then he's going to start using different words for the power itself. Notice that next word. The immeasurable greatness of his power. That word power can be translated as dunamis in Greek. It's where we get our word for Dynamite. Now, some people say, okay, it's an explosive power, you know. Well, the problem is they didn't have dynamite at that point. So they didn't have dynamite to compare it to. And so we understand, yeah, that's where we get dynamite from. But what this word really shows is a potential power, the potential to have a lot of power. It's not this explosive power, like someone try to say, but it is the potential for power and the capacity to work. So it's a potential power that was used in our salvation. Also, we see that it's according to the working, that second word, it's an energetic power. It's where it's the Greek word energos or energian. It's where we get our word for energy. So it is this, um, it is this potential power. It is also this active power. That's more the idea that that word shows. It's an active power that was used in our salvation. Next, we see the word great. This is a physical strength power, a dominance, a physical mastery is the idea that he's trying to get across. Now, again, they didn't have powerlifting then, but one of my friends is a powerlifter, and he can deadlift like 700 pounds or something like that. And whenever he's getting ready, I can see him kind of warming up to lift the weights. And he has not only that potential power, but he has the actual physical strength to get the bar up now i've been going i have gone in the past not now to try to work out with him and i've been trying to do 
the bench press. And I can remember he put some weight on there. And either because I'm tired or I'm just not strong enough, I try to push up. And I just can't. Sometimes there's a moment if it's too much weight where you just can't get it all the way up. And that's why you have someone spot you to make sure that it doesn't, you know, crush your chest or hurt you in some other way. That physical power just is not there. What Paul is saying here is that it's not only a potential power, an active working power, but he actually has the physical strength, the capacity to do this. And then lastly, we see that it is a mighty power. He says the working of his great might. This is the strength of God that belongs to him. It's an ultimate power. What is Paul saying about all this? Why is he using all of this, all these terms? This is the power that is used in our salvation. It's the power of Christ that saved us. And he's going to show us that. In fact, it says in verse 20, this is a power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him in the high places. And we'll talk more about that phrase in a moment. This is a dynamic power that God has. It's a dynamic power that was used in our salvation. What Paul is saying is he's saying that he wants us to know these things, to know what has been done for us in Christ, that we have a hope that we've been called to, that we actually are not our own, but that we belong to him. So many people today that talk about rights, and I have the right to do this. I have the right to do this on how I vote or how I live, or, you know, the government can't do this to me. And that may be true within the context of our country, but actually, if you are a Christian, then you belong to God. And he sets your rights. And it doesn't mean, oh, you just let people walk all over you. But if you're a Christian and you belong to God, then think about how he has called you to live. You know what he actually said? He said, love those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. He calls us to suffer for him. He calls some to even lay down their life, and we all should be willing to do that. It's not to say that we're not created in God's image. We are. We have rights being created in God's image. But if you belong to Christ, then your mindset should change that you are not your own, but you serve King Jesus As A.W. Tozer says, he says, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. How do you know God? How do you understand God this morning? There's a lot of people in our world, they don't really know who God is. They don't have a good understanding of how he works. There's some who think when they die that God's just going to say it's all good, that whether or not they've sinned or not, whether they've known him on earth, that he's just going to let them into heaven. They don't know God. Why do we study the Bible? Why do we study theology? Why do we have Sunday school where we talk about the study of the Bible? It's so we can know God. It's so we can understand him. But not just to have all this head knowledge, but in wisdom, we can put it into practice in our lives. How do you know Jesus this morning? How are you making him known? Look finally with me at verses 20 through 23. As we see, we can submit to his authority. 
the entire passage, I think, is based in this understanding that God has given Jesus the ultimate authority. Why? Well, first of all, in verse 20, he's raised him from the dead. This power that's talked about, this energetic, active, dynamic power, it's not only used to save us, it's actually the power that was used to raise Christ from the dead. He says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The right hand is a place of significance. It's a place where Jesus sits. We talked about this when we say that Christ intercedes to the Father on our behalf. Christ is seated next to God in heaven. He actually has dominion over all things. Now, that doesn't mean that he didn't have those things when he was here on earth, but it just shows us his true position and authority. On Wednesday nights, we studied some of the Psalms, and a lot of the Psalms talk about the throne room of God, how God's throne is high and lifted up. It is exalted. We cannot touch it. We cannot aspire to it. And then as he deals with man, he comes down from his throne. I use the illustration of when I was a kid, my grandpa would be in his chair most of the time falling asleep. And if we would do something as a kid, he would be in his chair, and I thought he was asleep. And if he heard us running around when we were supposed to be in bed, he would get up and we'd hear his cane knocking on the floor, coming to get us. And I thought, oh no, grandpa's awake. And he's out of his chair. And if he's out of his chair, that meant that he meant business. God coming down from his throne shows how he interacts with man, especially in judgment. We see that in the Psalms. But it is the high position of God to be on his throne. But we see Christ is right there. He's seated at the right hand of God. He is there, we see in Philippians, because he is God. He's equal with God. He willingly came to earth, suffered and died for us, was perfectly obedient to the Father, even to the point of death. And it says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him a name that's above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is the king, and he's Lord over all. It says he's been seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. These are things that are far above us, beyond us, places we could never reach. I, I'm, I've always been a pretty tall just person. Even when I was a kid, I would be the one who would try to reach things on the top shelf. I was over at Alicia's house for Thanksgiving, and there was a moment I was sitting down, and her mom called me over, and she said, hey, I need your help with something. And I thought, well, it's definitely not cooking the turkey, you know, so what is this going to be? And the plates were at the top shelf, and I had to get them down from there. Well, Christ is seated in the heavenly places, and the idea is that it's a place where we cannot reach. We cannot get to it. Think about the Tower of Babel. They wanted to build something that could reach God. And so what did God do? He confused their language. He made it so that they could not speak. He's raised, he's seated in the heavenly places. It says, verse 21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. So all the earthly and even spiritual realms, so rule and authority that men have on earth, he's seated above that. Christ's authority is above any other rule and authority that we have here on earth. But he also says it's above power and dominion. These are more spiritual terms, angels, that realm. Christ is even above that. 
in Colossians, the preeminence of Christ is shown. In fact, I almost preached on that passage this morning. It talks about how he's not only the firstborn of all creation, but all things are subjected to him. He's the head of all things, including the church. And that's shown here as well. In fact, Ephesians and Colossians are very similar, almost parallel letters. They have a lot of similar sections in them. So he's seated above all rule, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named. Christ has a better name. His name is better. And it says in Philippians that he's been given this name that is above every other name and that we will confess that he is Lord of all. That's not saying that your parents did a bad job when they picked your name, but Christ's name shows his position. Whatever name the Roloffs give to their baby is going to have some kind of significance to them about their child. A lot of times names have different meanings. Christ's name showed, it wasn't just a name that God picked out and thought sounded nice, but it shows Christ's position, that he is above all, that he is superior. It says he's above every name that is named, not only in this age, so our present age, but also in the age to come. Whether it's now or whether it's later, Jesus is above all. In verse 22, he's put all things under his feet. It shows the authority that he has, that everything on the earth, think about that, is under the footstool of Christ, is beneath him. And gave him his head over all things to the church. It even shows his authority over the church, which is a big part of what Paul's letter of the Ephesians is talking about. The church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all. What does it mean that the church is his body, the fullness of him? Well, it means, I think, and there's a lot of different debates over this term, actually. In fact, as I was reading this week, you know, you get to the end of a commentary and you're ready to move on to the next one. I'm like, why are there like 20 pages on verse 23? It's like five words. Well, it's because there's a lot of debate over what this phrase actually means. I believe it means that Christ fills the church. He fills every one of us at salvation. And in fact, Christ fills everything. In Colossians, it says he is the head of all things and in him all things consist. We're held together by him. That doesn't mean everyone's a Christian. I'm not trying to preach universalism, but everything is held together by Christ. Christ is Lord of all. He is head of all. And whether you answer that question saying, yes, I will submit to him on earth, or you spend your whole life rejecting Jesus as the king, there will be a point in your life where you see him and you know him and you will confess he is Lord. And that will be a joyous day for those of us who know Christ. That'll be a scary day for those who don't. Christ is the king, and we see this affects even all of Ephesians, as Paul is talking about this. That if Jesus is Lord of all, if he is supreme, if he's in control of all things, then we can know one another in faith and love. Then we can know him and have wisdom in him. We should want to know him. We should want to have a relationship with him later on as he explains what salvation is in chapter two why is christ able to do this how has he made us alive 
How, are, how is salvation a gift by grace? Because he is supreme. So we think about Jesus as the king. Ask yourself two final questions. How can you deepen, first of all, your knowledge of Christ? How can you deepen your knowledge of Christ? But not just in a way to fill yourself up with head knowledge. It's important to know facts, to know truth. But how can you know Christ in such a way that it affects your life? I've been doing a Bible reading plan this year where I'm trying to read through the entire Bible. And I think it's a great exercise. I think everybody should try at some point to read through the entire Bible, whether that's in a year, a couple years, whatever the case is. But one thing I've noticed about myself is that what I used to do for my devotions was just going through one passage at a time. Because I'm doing so much reading in this Bible reading plan, I often don't allow it to affect my heart. I can be filled with all of this knowledge and intellectual reading, but I often don't take the time to let the truth of God's word come into my heart and fill me and affect how I live. True wisdom doesn't just stay in your head, but it affects how you live as well. Secondly, how can you share that knowledge with others? How can you share the knowledge that you have of Christ with other people around you? Who are you sharing the gospel with? When you pray for others, do you pray not only for their physical needs, but how they need to be grown and made more mature in Christ? Even as we think about Jesus as the king... I've read a lot of stories about kings, and sometimes I can get into some of that stuff. You know, the Lord of the Rings, the Return of the King. Sometimes I can get into all these different stories about king. I mean, my name is Lance, so I get called Lance a lot, a lot. As we think about Jesus being the king, we remember that our king did not come with a big caravan. He did not come dressed in royalty, but he came as a servant. And so even as you think about how can I submit to Jesus, the king, who can you serve in your life? Who can you serve? How can you serve like Christ? Sometimes even in serving others, we can think this is beneath me. This is a waste of my time. Well, think about all these things are true about Christ that we've read. And yet he washed his disciples feet. All things are under the feet of Christ. Yet he took the time to wash their feet. So we think about this this morning. How can you know Jesus and how can you make Jesus know? My prayer for us is that we would grow in our knowledge of him, not just so that we can have the right answers in Sunday school, but so that it can affect our lives and we can better submit to him as king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his lordship, Thank you for his gospel that he's preached to us. May we be faithful to know him and to make him known each and every day of our lives. And Father, we look forward to the day where we can say that he is Lord of all. May that truth of his control over everything affect how we live, who we talk to, and who we tell of his gospel. And may you just be with us this Christmas season as well. Remind us of who Jesus is in his name. Amen.